Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Today you're going to hear about an insecurity of mine when it comes to fly fishing. It's actually something I really don't struggle with anymore, but it's something that for a while was a, a fly fishing issue I kind of had to work through. And I know I'm not alone because I've read and heard other folks that have struggled with this fly fishing insecurity um, along with me. But before we get to that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of my fly fishing uh, life, and actually my, my trout fishing life, and uh, it was on the Little Red River in Arkansas, and I think I talked about this briefly in the Why You Should Go Fly Fish the Ozarks podcast, but I caught my very first trout on the Little Red River, which is actually a pretty decent sized uh, river down in Arkansas, and I caught a fish under a bobber on a piece of corn. And the whole strategy was pretty straightforward. I found a place where I was told there was lots of trout, and I cast my whole setup out there, fully expecting to catch a fish because I was told there was trout there. And I caught fish, and again, it's just what I expected to happen because that's what you do when you go fishing. You cast into the water, and eventually a fish comes and gets it. Sometimes I think in fly fishing, we overthink things and that simplicity of both kind of childlike fishing um, but also just the fact that eventually a fish is going to swim to where your uh, fly or your lure or your bait is is uh, seems too simple but that's not really here or there what's significant is is I caught a fish in a very large river then I went home to Virginia and I spent a lot of time really years fishing in smaller streams mountain brook trout streams in Maryland and Virginia and Pennsylvania and Spring Creeks as well. A lot of streams that I could really cast across with a lot of uh, ease. A lot of streams that as you're walking up them, you could really see the entirety of what was happening in the water at any given time because they were smaller. I got very, very comfortable in this type of fishing. 
which led to a problem when I started trying to go to more destination type streams. And I can vividly remember heading to Western Maryland to the Yakagani River and thinking this was going to be impossible because even though it's not an enormous river, by Eastern standards, by Eastern Trout River standards, it's pretty big. And there's a lot of water between the banks and is a long river upstream and downstream. And I really was insecure in my ability to locate fish and to catch fish in this situation. And like I said before, a lot of folks share the same sort of um, insecurity or feelings of inadequacy when it comes to making that transition from small streams, little rivers, to bigger rivers. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. It is just a much bigger situation. There's a lot more to digest. And if you're used to finding fish in pockets and pools, seeing an expanse of water can be intimidating. And so I kind of had to overcome that. And uh, I had some guys that I fished with that helped me with that. I um, had some resources uh, that uh, really uh, gave me a lot of confidence when it came to fishing bigger water. And so I wanted to talk through um, about five things today that uh, you can employ if this is something you struggle with. Um, or if you have no problem fishing big rivers, but you have friends or uh, other folks that you um, want to get into fishing big rivers, ways you can help them think about fishing bigger water that uh, maybe I can put into small bite-sized uh, chunks that you can you can help pass on. So the first is really simple, which is just go fishing. Kind of going back to my story of uh, my first trout, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I fished, and it's kind of like a uh, blind squirrel finding a nut. As long as you're not doing something ridiculous, like you know, false casting the entire time, so your fly's never in the water, or fishing to frog water where there's probably not any any trout, you know, you're gonna eventually find a fish. So you throw a woolly bugger and you strip it in in water that's moving, you're probably gonna find a fish eventually. It's not a high percentage game, but you're gonna eventually get into trout and that'll do wonders for your confidence. Again, it's probably not the most efficient way to do it, but just getting out there um, is better than not getting out there. So say you move someplace uh, that has big trout water and you are used to small trout water, just getting out there is getting you in the water and hopefully it isn't frustrating, um, but it's actually going to provide intermittent reward. So that's the first thing, just get out and fish. The second thing is probably the most profound, and that is breaking the water up into smaller segments. And this is like the most um, oft-cited piece of advice for folks who are fishing big water. Um, think of that giant river as lots of little rivers. Sometimes this is really easy for you. If there's islands, if there is um, broken water because of um, uh, a lot of structure on one side versus another, uh, you're able to do this really effortlessly. But this is a really, really simple concept that actually I kind of first became aware of from watching Saturday morning bass fishing because one of the, the standard pieces of advice given by all those guys to folks watching these shows was when you get to new water, don't worry about figuring out the whole lake. Just go find a dock. Go find some riprap, you know, coming off the, the bank. You know, it doesn't matter how many acres of water are behind you. If you're focused on a dock, you know, a dock is a dock is a dock from one lake to another lake, and you're able to probably get into fish. 
The same thing can be said on a large river. You find um, a drop-off. You find some rocks. You find some riffles. Don't worry about all the other stuff that's around it. Just focus on that one spot. I'll give you a great example. Recently, I was out at a brand new stretch of water in western Massachusetts, and I was kind of intimidated. Again, never been to this river. It was a pretty decent sized river and was just trying to figure out where I should go. Well, I saw a rock in the middle of the river and it's actually a series of three rocks. And um, I saw that there was some slack water behind the first major rock and uh, that it kind of had a little tail out behind it. And so I just went and fished that and I got into some fish and I fished that one rock and the um, slack water and tail out behind it and caught some fish and then did the same thing to the next rock and the same thing to that third rock. Now, I got into lots of different fish and I probably spent a couple hours doing that. And if you kind of diagrammed out, you know, out of that entire river, bank to bank, which was, you know, maybe a, a hundred feet wide or more um, and, you know, tons of river miles upstream and downstream, almost all of my casts were in a 20 foot width and probably a 45 foot length. So in if you, if you just again diagram those casts kind of like, you know, when they show you the all the passes thrown by a quarterback uh, digitally um, in a, in a game showing you where all the passes go. If you looked at all of my casts, it would basically be the footprint of a small creek. Even though it was in the context of a much larger river, those three rocks essentially formed three major pools and three little tailouts um, within this larger river that I was confident in my ability to catch fish after I located a fish in that first one. I kind of keyed in on what they were doing. They were taking nymphs under an indicator, and I just did that throughout those three pools and got into a number of fish. Now, there was other things I noticed in that spot. I noticed in the far bank there was overhanging trees, and there was kind of a, a drop-off that there might have been an undercut to that bank, or there might have just been faster water because um, it was more of a kind of a sheer cliff. But I was content fishing those three rocks and those three pools. And so you can do this in all manner of ways. Again, you can find a riffle. You can um, find a ledge. You can find a, a, a small waterfall or the remnants of an old dam and just key in on that and not think about everything else that's around you. Just look at that one thing. And over the course or the width of a river and the course of a river, you'll find lots and lots of different items that you can kind of key in on. Now, the third thing, so first, go fishing. Secondly, break up the water into smaller segments. Thirdly, figure out the bottom. Now, there's a couple different ways to do this. One is just get out there. And actually, you get out there and you and if you wade, kind of think about what your feet are standing on. Um, for you, you don't want to sacrifice wading safely for kind of doing a, a mapping of the river bottom. But just be cognizant of what you're walking on. Are you walking on gravel? Are you walking on larger rocks? Um, when you hit a, a ledge and you say, Oop, I can't wade any further, um, don't see that as a, okay, well, I can't wade any further. Think of, you know what, maybe there's a great seam right here that I can't see because the water is deeper, but there could be a, a, um, a current that would be carrying food to fish. So I might have just spooked those fish, but if I back up and move upstream or downstream, I might have this same sort of situation. Another way that you can see this is low water. Whether it be low water in the summertime or um, it be a, uh, a low flow situation if it's a tailwater, just paying attention to where the gravel bars are, 
where the deep holes are that when that water is drawn down for whatever reason doesn't mean go out there and take advantage of the fish that are seeking thermal refuge that's not what i'm saying what i am saying is that you can be observant of the contours of the river when it's in low flows so that when the normal flows resume you have a better idea of what's out there so you can get that from walking kind of using your feet to map it and making mental notes of that you can also get that from low flows um, so when the water is up instead of it just being a wide glassy maybe choppy in some places river you know that underneath that there's actually you know pools and riffles and areas where um where there's seams that uh, might not be super evident from the surface, but are there's actually great variation um, of the flows underneath the current of the, the surface be, because of these changes um, from small rocks to large rocks, larger drop-offs, and even boulders that might be completely obscured um, when the, the flows are higher. So paying attention to those contours and lower flows and when you're waiting can really help you find water as you're doing that job of breaking up that stream into smaller segments. The fourth piece of advice is a whole lot like go out and fish, and that is fish with your confidence flies and your confidence techniques. Um, a lot of folks I've encountered, including myself, you, you get out to a new water and you try to reinvent yourself. You know, you think, oh, I have to cast 50, 60 feet if I can cast 50 and 60 feet. Maybe I'm used to casting 20 feet in a smaller river, but now I have all the space, so I probably should do it. You know, that's silly. It, there, there's opportunities where that's that's uh, um, important to be able to do that, and there's circumstances that demand that you do that. But to kind of reinvent yourself as an angler isn't always the best way to go about things. So if you like fishing a double nymph rig, um, high sticking, only 15 feet in front of you, then do that. If you like fishing a dry dropper combo um, and your confidence fly is a parachute Adams with a little zebra midge, you know, 12 inches down, you know, then just fish that. There's a very good chance that there's trout on a large river that are going to go after that combo, um, just like there are trout on a small river. So don't goof with more variables that than that needed to be goofed with. Um, you know, sometimes we, we outthink ourselves. We we try too hard. But if there is a pattern that you have a lot of confidence in, chances are that even if you're in a different place, you're going to fish that well. You're going to fish that in ways that you're familiar with. And, and there's something to be said for being familiar with the way a certain fly or rig floats, what strikes feel like, how to cast it, and, and again, not adding other variables that don't need to be added. Um, I'm a big believer that presentation is a probably the, the most significant factor when it comes to um, catching fish, uh, a lot more than pattern um, goes, especially with dry flies, especially with streamers. Um, and and so if, if you are very comfortable with a technique, with a rig, with a fly, uh, focus on fishing those things well in a new place as you break up that river and as you're just getting out there and fishing. So first, go fishing. Second, break up the river. Thirdly, bottom contours. Fourthly, confidence flies and techniques. And the last one, the big no-brainer, is hire a guide. Hiring a guide does a few things. First of all, it gets you on fish. 
at least it should in theory it'll get you on fish and that kind of you know lubricates your brain and you know gives you that confidence and kind of starts to ease you out of that place of insecurity if you do struggle with that and again if you fish big rivers all the time this might just sound ridiculous but it's a real thing you know it's it's a totally different world it would be like a trout fisher going to the salt or vice versa it's a completely different world in a lot of ways um at least from a surface perspective, you know, for, for, uh, in someone's head, uh, going from a small river to a large river can be daunting. So getting a guide can get you on fish. Secondly, it's a learning experience. That doesn't mean that you question them when they say cast in front of that rock and you say, why? That's not what you do. You're paying them to put you on fish. And so you want to cast in front of that rock, but as you're retrieving it or mending it, or after that, you say, well, why did I cast in front of it instead of behind it? It seems like the slack water behind it would have been the place to put it. And they can explain to you why, well, no, in this situation, this is, this is why we're casting there. Or you can ask questions like, so why are we anchoring, you know, in the middle of the riffle? I, I would have thought the tail out or the, the head of the riffle would have been a better place to go. Getting that kind of information can be incredibly helpful as you walk and wade, as you float, as you become more comfortable and familiar with larger water. So five, again, simple kind of no-brainer things if you fished bigger water for most of your fly fishing life or if it's something that you've become comfortable with, but they're things that might not be second nature to somebody who hasn't done it before or somebody who's making that transition from smaller creeks to bigger water. So if you do fish um, big rivers and you're taking other folks, hopefully this has been helpful to kind of give you um, some words and some concepts to help you uh, explain that um, to those who are in your boat or those who you are waiting with. If you've had other things that have helped you make that transition from small water to big water, let me know in the comments on castingacross.com under this episode page. Today's recommendation is a pair of gloves. Recently, I wrote that there's no perfect pair of fly fishing gloves, and I actually stand by that. But the pair that I got at the beginning of the season, I'm actually a huge fan of, and they're about as good as they get. And that's Sims Headwaters Foldover Mitt. So these are black polar fleece gloves that um, are fingerless and thumbless, um, but you can fold the mitten over your fingers and a little thumb digit over your thumb. I think this is way better than the individual fingers um, when it comes to a fleece mitt. I like this better than neoprene. They are water resistant, so if they get wet from snow, if they get dunked real quick, there's enough water resistance in the synthetic material that they're not going to get saturated. Your hand's going to stay warm. Um, they're not constricting like some other gloves. They're they're tight enough that they don't feel baggy, but they're not going to constrict your your hand. I love them for 30 bucks. I think they're great for fly fishing. Again, you get all your fingers for tying knots, for ice fishing, um, for even just kind of having in the car as a pair of warm gloves that I've used to uh, clean off my car in the wintertime. So um, at the time of this recording, it's kind of the end of the wintertime. But again, if this is something that uh, you've been struggling to find a good pair of gloves for taking on the river, I would seriously suggest the Headwaters Foldover Mitt from Sims. $30, not a bad investment to keep your hands warm. Um, again, the link for this will be in the show page on the website. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.
spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.